0: Hey everyone, Lainey here. And my good friends, Shay and Aaron from one of my favorite shows called All Crime No Cattle, which is a Texas true crime podcast, have agreed to host this episode for me while I'm out on my maternity leave. Of course, you know that I miss you and I can't wait to get back to hosting, but I'm really enjoying soaking up this time with my little girl. So before the show gets started, I want to let you know where you can find out more about All Crime No Cattle. You can go to their website, allcrimenocattle.com. Find them on Twitter at ACIN as a Nancy C podcast and on Instagram at all Crime no cattle. And as Shay and Aaron like to say, always remember crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Okay, on to the show. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised.
1: Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your guest host, Aaron, of the All Crime, No Cattle podcast. I'm sitting in for Laney, who is on maternity leave. The case we are going to talk about today is likely familiar to true crime fans. Over the years, this case has become more than an unsolved mystery. It has also become one woman's crusade for justice over the corruption and abuse of power by county, state, and even federal officials. The biggest source for this episode was Mara Leverett's book, The Boys on the Tracks. Okay, on to the show. Just a few miles south of Little Rock, Arkansas, lies the quiet bedroom community of Bryant. Nestled between the two is Alexander, Arkansas a small town that sits in two counties, Saline and Pulaski. The children who live on the Saline side of Alexander attend Bryant School District, while those who live on the Pulaski side attend Little Rock School District. Alexander is a small community with a population just under 4,000 in 2019. Surrounded on either side by lush woods, both communities are a hybrid of city and rural living, with many families being avid hunters. That was what best friends Don Henry, 16, and Kevin Ives, 17, were doing the night of August 22nd and early morning hours of August 23rd, 1987. They had been out with friends earlier in the evening and arrived at Don's home just a little after midnight. Don asked his father, Curtis, if they could go out hunting. The pair were actually going to go spotlighting, a form of hunting that is illegal in Arkansas. Spotlighting involves shining a spotlight in an animal's eyes, which causes it to freeze. The animal is then shot. Not only was spotlighting illegal, deer season does not open into the fall in Arkansas. However, in rural areas, and for families who have always hunted, many teenagers decide to risk it. A little after 4 a.m., a Union Pacific train was traveling into the Little Rock area from Texarkana. As they approached Alexander, The train crested a hill called Bryant Hill by locals and then descended into a more flat terrain. As the train approached the Crooked Creek trestle, the bright lights were on. The brakeman, Danny DeLamar, saw something on the tracks and stood up to see better what it was. The engineer, Stephen Shoyer, and conductor, Jerry Tomlin, also stood up. When they were approximately 100 feet from the object, they all had the same sinking realization of what was lying directly in their path. The three men were looking at two young men lying between the rails. They spotted a gun to the north of one of the boys and a green tarp covering the boys from the waist down. Their heads were against one rail, with their feet over the other. Their arms and hands were by their sides, and their heads were facing up. They did not move at all. Stephen hit the emergency brake while simultaneously sounding the whistle. The train was traveling at the federal speed limit of 55 miles per hour, which caused the cars to shudder and buck when the emergency brake was applied. Stephen never let off the whistle, but the three men didn't see the pair on the tracks move or flinch at all. The sound made when the train ran over the two bodies no doubt haunted these three men for the rest of their lives. According to Mara Leverett's book, The Boys on the Tracks, the boys were dragged under the train for a bit. Stephen managed to get his shocked reaction under control, and was successful in bringing the train to a stop. The crew radio dispatched to alert them to the incident, and then local law enforcement was notified. When the men walked along the tracks, they began finding body parts. They noticed something was odd. There wasn't much blood. Jerry was a native Arkansan who had hunted his entire life and knew how animals bled when they were killed. He said later that there was very little blood, and of the blood that was present, it was a dark purplish color. At 4.40 a.m., just 13 minutes after the train crew made the first report, members of the Saline County Sheriff's Department arrived on scene. One of the first officers began diagramming the scene. Then additional emergency personnel began arriving, including an Arkansas state trooper, railroad officials, and paramedics. In what was going to be the first of many mistakes, oversights, and downright cover-ups, the officer diagramming the scene used the train as his reference point. Once the train left the scene, the point of reference was gone forever. Moreover, officers let another train pass through a short time after the impact, further disrupting evidence. The two deputies treated the scene as a cut-and-dried suicide. However, the trooper who arrived on scene had received a call of shots fired in the same area several hours before. He did not respond earlier in the night, but responded to the scene when he heard the call about a train accident. He was later shocked and disturbed by the deputy's immediate dismissal of this as a suicide. He told them he did not believe it was an accident, but had to back off, since it was the sheriff's department's jurisdiction. The emergency medical technicians who arrived on scene also found the scene odd. One of the EMTs told investigators the bodies looked more like mannequins, and that of the little blood on the scene, it was very dark. The second EMT said the bodies were very pale as if they had been dead for some time. The EMTs added a note of interest to the report they wrote within hours of departing from the scene. They wrote in the note, quote, Blood from the bodies and on the body parts we observed was a dark color in nature. Due to our training, this would indicate a lack of oxygen present in the blood and can pose a question as to how long the victims had been dead. One of the responding officers did disagree with the initial officer's view that this was an accident or suicide. She spoke out on this, but her concerns were brushed off. Another major point of contention in the original investigation of the scene was the green tarp all three men in the engine had seen. Jerry had walked up and down the tracks, looking for the tarp, and finally found where it had blown to the bottom of the trestle. He made sure to show it to deputy talent, who said it must have been an optical illusion. Investigators also reacted with disbelief when the trainmen said they had seen a gun. It appeared they had not even walked the tracks yet, so Jerry showed that to him as well. During the entire time at the scene, the sheriff at the time, James Steed, never came to the tracks, although many residents had started milling around. Sheriff Steed had long been an active participant in crime scenes and was known for being hands-on. Because of this, his absence that morning was regarded as very odd. Later that morning, the phone at the Ives' home rang. When Linda, who was home alone, answered it, a very worried Curtis Henry was on the other line. The boys had not returned home the night before, and Curtis had been looking for them since 5 a.m. Both boys' cars were in the driveway outside the Henry's home. Don drove a Pontiac Firebird, and Kevin a Chevy Camaro, a sign of coolness in the 80s. Curtis drove around, even encountering a deputy at the railroad tracks of Shobe Road. He asked the deputy if he had seen two teenagers, and the deputy responded by asking who he was looking for. Curtis thought it was odd and decided to let it drop. The call from Curtis unnerved Linda, who believed Kevin's disappearance was abnormal. Kevin was a hard worker and very conscientious, who hunted with his father Moreover, Linda was annoyed that Curtis had allowed the boys to go out hunting illegally. Kevin and Dawn had not been friends all that long, just about six months, so that was of particular concern. She had only allowed Kevin to stay with Dawn once before, in July. That evening had ended similarly, in that Curtis had called the Ives home and asked if the boys were with them. Several hours of worry later, Kevin had walked in and explained to his worried parents that Don and Curtis had fought, so he drove Don to another friend's home and they spent the night there. Although she was annoyed, Linda had little reason to believe this was any different than that night. The next time Curtis called Linda, around noon, began her lifelong fight for answers and justice. Curtis called and reported to Linda that the boys had been shot and tied to the tracks. Linda called her neighbor who drove her to the Henry's home. As her neighbor parked the car, a deputy approached Linda. So she questioned him about Kevin and Don's whereabouts. Deputy Talent tried to lead her inside, but she demanded answers. She repeated what Curtis had told her, and Deputy Talent said, quote, We don't have any indication they were shot or tied. A ball cap from Little Rock Electric Company had been found at the scene, which was the first clue investigators had as to the identity of the two boys. Curtis had given Don the cap that summer, and had one just like it. Officers had called the Henry home while Curtis was out, and then had driven there to speak to them face to face. Deputy Talent told Curtis and Linda that a positive identification would have to wait until the medical examiner confirmed it by dental records, and then said they could not see the boys, and there was nothing to see at the scene. Sadly, this was not quite the case. The day after the train incident, news reports came out about the mystery. This drew the curious to the scene of the crime. One of these onlookers, a relative of Curtis and Don Henry, found a severed foot in the gravel and contacted the Saline County Sheriff's Department. A deputy was sent to retrieve the foot and then took the foot to the county coroner's office. The coroner called the state medical examiner's office, who said that the autopsies had been completed and the body sent to the family's funeral homes of choice. A few days later, Sheriff Steed and his chief deputy reported no foul play was suspected, but they were awaiting results from the medical examiner, Fami Malik. A week after the two families had buried their sons, they had a meeting with Dr. Malik at the Arkansas State Police Headquarters, which housed the crime lab. At the time, the state police were housed in a building in West Little Rock, with a canopy of trees covering the lot. In this setting, the families met Arkansas State Police Investigator Lieutenant Frank Mitchell. Lieutenant Mitchell was assigned to Saline County and was interested in the case. The families were relieved to hear this. Both families had what they believed to be evidence in the trunks of their cars. Larry Ives had a piece of cardboard he and others had found at the scene. The cardboard had a large stain on it that they believed to be blood and was large enough to have dragged bodies. Curtis had pieces of a gun he and his friends found at the location. Lt. Mitchell took the pieces and assured the families they would be examined. However, the items were apparently not logged properly, and the cardboard was not examined. The pieces of the gun were lost. The families were not sure what to expect, but it sure was not having their picture taken. Dr. Malik took pictures of everyone and then presented them with forms to sign, stating they had attended the meeting. Dr. Fahmi Malik, originally from Egypt, had attended Cairo University before traveling to the U.S. in 1970. He was a resident pathologist in South Bend, Indiana, and then trained as a forensic pathologist in Pittsburgh. He came to Arkansas in 1978. Controversy surrounded him even before he came to Arkansas. In a January 1976 ruling, Dr. Malik listed the cause of death of Edward Hutton as accidental and signed the report. However, in a 1977 murder trial of the man accused of murdering Edward, Dr. Malik testified he did not believe it was an accident, and he signed the document, quote, because this is the way they do things in Pittsburgh. However, Dr. Joshua Perper, chief forensic pathologist for Allegheny Coroner and Dr. Malik's supervisor, did not remember Dr. Malik speaking to him concerning homicide. Dr. Perper also mentioned Dr. Malik's contract with the Allegheny office was up for renewal in July 1977, but said no decision had been made yet. However, it appears Dr. Malik's contract was not renewed, as he worked for Cook County, Illinois, as an assistant medical examiner in 1977, before he was hired as an associate state medical examiner in Arkansas in September 1978. Dr. Malik replaced Dr. Stephen Marks, who had his own controversies surrounding him. The first order of business for Dr. Malik was to end the practice of cremating internal organs from autopsy patients. This had been done for quite some time, and family members were not aware of this. It also made it difficult if a body had to be exhumed for an additional autopsy. In 1979, an official investigation was opened by Tommy Robinson, Arkansas Public Safety Director. More than 100 cases were flagged to examine, but after the sixth exhumation and the sixth error found, Bill Clinton, then governor of the state, called an end to the probe. One case found to have been improperly handled by Dr. Marks was that of a young woman who was found floating in Lake Washita. Her death was ruled to be suicide by drowning. There was a large gash on top of her head, which was said to be an injury sustained when her body floated to the surface and came into contact with a boat propeller. A second autopsy discovered a bullet entry wound in the top of her mouth. A second case was the death of an inmate, ruled natural due to a heart infection. However, upon exhumation and re-examination, it was found the inmate had died of strangulation and a broken neck, which occurred during horseplay with a guard during the late hours of the night. This information had not been in the original autopsy report. Unfortunately, controversy surrounding the Arkansas medical examiner would continue under Dr. Malik's tenure. At the first meeting with Dr. Malik, however, the families were not aware of any of these controversies. After having their pictures made, Dr. Malik provided a copy of his official ruling, simultaneously announcing that the case was the cause of THC intoxication. The report actually read, quote, At 4.25 a.m. on August 23, 1987, Larry Kevin Ives, 17, and Don George Henry, 16, were unconscious and in a deep sleep on the railroad tracks under the psychedelic influence of THC, marijuana, when a train passed over them, causing their accidental death. The families were stunned and perplexed. They did not know much about drugs, but had never heard of psychedelic influences of it. Linda asked Dr. Malik how high the levels were. Dr. Malik wrote 5 on the chalkboard, and then 100. He pointed at the 5 and said people whose levels were at 5 are considered to be under the influence. He jabbed at the 100 on the board and said that was how high the levels were in Kevin and Don's blood. Linda wanted to know what type of measurement that was, and Dr. Malik replied curtly with, units. Still confused, the parents wanted to know how many marijuana cigarettes they would have had to have smoked to get those levels. Dr. Malik replied but never actually provided an answer. The parents asked again and again. Dr. Malik launched into a lengthy explanation without answering their question. Dr. Malik became frustrated and hostile and threatened to show the autopsy photos to the parents. No matter what they discussed, Dr. Malik seemed increasingly angry and the parents tried to ask other questions. He still continued reaching for the photos until Chief Deputy Rick Elmendorf reached for the envelopes containing the photographs and said, quote, They don't want to look at these. Sitting back down, he whispered to Linda that Dr. Malik had told him 20 marijuana cigarettes, a number Dr. Malik denied ever stating. Curtis asked Dr. Malik how the boys could have laid down in identical positions side by side if they were so stoned. Dr. Malik's reply was, I've seen stranger things in my career. Once Dr. Malik's ruling was made public, it created an uproar in the media. However, Saline County Sheriff's Department said that they were satisfied with it. Linda, wanting more answers, began asking questions of everyone. She was particularly worried about the appearance of the blood. A few weeks after the meeting with Dr. Malik, one of Linda's friends arranged a meeting with one of the responding EMTs. The night she met Billy Heath, she drove to the Celine Memorial Hospital, where she found him surrounded by three deputies. Billy said he had changed his mind, but Linda noticed he was shaking. She implored upon him to speak to her just for a minute in private. He finally agreed, and Linda asked him about the appearance of the blood. He told her to read his report, that he took five hours to write it. She gave up after that and began leaving with her friend, who said it was odd to find three deputies at the hospital at that time of night. Before they exited the hospital, Billy Heath caught up to them. He wanted to let Linda know that he had referred to the two boys as the large boy and the small boy, because he wasn't sure who was who. Three weeks after the boys' deaths, the families decided to hire an independent pathologist. They selected one out of Memphis, Tennessee. Blood was available for both boys, but urine was only available for Kevin because Don's bladder had been destroyed. The pathologist confirmed Dr. Malik's findings by only testing Kevin's urine. He never tested the blood. The families contacted the independent pathologist, who confirmed that he had not tested the blood and was able to agree with Dr. Malik's findings because he knew the tests the lab ran. The parents asked him point-blank if he had spoken to Dr. Malik before they had. He agreed he had and never sent the families a bill. The case seemed to stall after Dr. Malik refused to release samples for other independent labs to test, even though the families obtained a court order. On February 7th, 1988, Linda started calling the media and held a press conference the next day. The families expressed their frustrations and concerns about the investigation, including information about Dr. Malik's refusal to submit to the court order. Of course, the press conference was explosive and was picked up by local and national papers. When Dr. Malik was interviewed a day later, he was complicit and agreed to release the samples. However, after he agreed in front of the press, he held a meeting with Curtis and Larry only, where he decided to display some power in a heartless manner. While they were talking, one of Dr. Malik's assistants brought some jars into the room. Opening one, he poked the item inside with a pencil, And told Curtis, That's a part of your son's heart. Knowing Dr. Malik was playing a game, Curtis just asked what was in the other jars. True to his usual nature, Dr. Malik got angry and closed the jar. He tried to persuade them that sending the samples elsewhere would be a foolish waste of money. Richard Garrett contacted Linda after the press conference. He and his partner, Dan Harmon, had not been aware the families were dissatisfied. Dan Harmon had been the special prosecutor in an embezzlement case involving Celine Memorial Hospital several years earlier. Several people were indicted after that grand jury meeting, and Dan Harmon was a hero to Celine County. Once they spoke to the parents, Richard and Don were able to have a special prosecutor's hearing convened. During this hearing, under questioning, Dr. Malik refused to answer any questions unless he could show photos of the boys' bodies. A recess was called while Dan Harmon contacted the attorney general. After his conversation, he said Dr. Malik could not be compelled to testify. On February 26, 1988, after a hearing in Saline County, the cause of the boys' deaths was changed from accidental to undetermined. Once the cause of death had been changed, Dan and Richard asked the families how they felt about exhuming their sons and submitting the remains to an out-of-state forensic pathologist. The family agreed and submitted the remains to a pathologist in Georgia. After a second autopsy conducted by the Georgia pathologist, a grand jury was convened in April 1988. Before the grand jury met, however, Linda wrote a letter to Sheriff Steed and sent a copy to the Benton Courier. The letter said You have stated that you are satisfied with the investigation your department has conducted in the death of my son, Kevin Ives, and his friend, Don Henry. You have also insinuated that our dissatisfaction with the investigation stems from the personal tragedy that we have suffered. I would like to point out to you, as well as the public, some of the reasons we are dissatisfied. 1. It is a fact that the area was never roped off as a protected crime scene. 2. The area could not have possibly been searched thoroughly for evidence of a crime. After the investigation of the scene was completed, family and friends went to the area and found Kevin's foot, the gunstock and other parts of the gun Don had, and other personal belongings of the boys. I consider this clear evidence of how well the area was searched. 3. We were informed about reports that two people had heard gunshots shortly before the accident. Saline County Sheriff's Office assured us that tests would be done on the gun Don carried, but tests were never done. 4. We were assured from the very beginning that SCSO would request assistance from the state police. Colonel Goodwin informed me that a request was never received in his office. It is a fact that there is no state police report of any kind filed on the accident. Five. Three train crew members reported a green tarp partially covering the boys as they lay on the tracks. One of the crew saw where it landed and shined a light on it and informed SCSO where it was. SCSO assured us they would personally interview the train crew rather than rely on the railroad investigator's report. That never happened either. They now tell us that this green tarp was an optical illusion. 6. There was information given to the SCSO that could have developed into a possible lead, but the informant was never contacted. 7. Don's stepmother found a partial bag of marijuana in Don's jean pockets on 2 nearly six months after Don's personal effects were returned to her. An SCSO deputy said they turned the boys' clothes inside out, but somehow they missed the bag of marijuana, evidence and contraband. What else was missed besides a foot in marijuana? 8. The back of the train was used as a reference point for gathering evidence, so when the train pulled away, the reference point was lost forever. These are just a few of the things regarding SCSO's investigation that we are unhappy over, some things we know about. I shudder to think what we do not know about. And last of all, Sheriff Steed, you have no firsthand knowledge of this investigation that you are so proud of. You did not even bother to go down to the scene nor have you ever contacted us personally regarding the death of our sons. The letter was a mother's battle cry.
0: This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out betterhelp.com TCFC. Now, as you know, I am a new mom, so my life is kind of crazy right now. And sure, everybody's life is full of stressors, and it doesn't matter who you are or what you have, your life is probably stressful. But I'm learning to navigate how to deal with any type of postpartum blues that I may be having, and BetterHelp has honestly really helped me. Now, you may not be feeling down and out and depressed, or like you're at a total loss, but if your stress is high, your temper is shorter than usual, or even if you're starting to feel strain in any of your relationships, you could probably use the chance to unload. So unload the stress and get it out. Talk to someone who's completely unbiased about your life, someone who isn't going to judge you or take sides on anything. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. See if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners get ten percent off their first month at BetterHelp.com/tcfc. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com/tcfc. One nefarious doctor, a hit podcast, and fifteen million listeners later, Doctor Death is still making waves all over the world. Dr. Death is the true story of Dr. Christopher Dunch, a sociopath with a scalpel who left a trail of bodies behind him. Before he was stopped, 33 patients would become paralyzed or die under his care. Now the phenomenon of Dr. Death is being reimagined in a new streaming series starring Alec Baldwin, Anna-Sophia Robb, Joshua Jackson, and Christian Slater, exclusively on Peacock. Experience three brand-new bonus episodes of the Dr. Death podcast, where the cast interviews the real-life characters they portray in the streaming series. Golden Globe Award winner Christian Slater sits down with Dr. Kirby, the doctor who finally took down. Anna-Sophia Robb talks to Michelle Schugart, the district attorney who put him behind bars. And Dr. Death host and reporter Laura Bell speaks with the full cast about how making the show change their perspectives on institutions, and the medical system. To listen to these new bonus episodes, follow Dr. Death on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. There are hundreds of companies out there claiming to compare auto and home insurance rates, but there's only one who actually does it. Get a better insurance with Gabby. And I know it because I've done it. Gabby is the one true comparison platform with fast, verifiable quotes, not ballpark guesses. Use your current policy to find a better policy, comparing your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers, all in one place. Use your current insurance information to get started. It's free, and they only show policies that are the same or better than your current coverage, many of them at a lower price. Gabby helped me find the right policy for my home. Now, we are not new home buyers, but we were looking to find competitive rates for our homeowners insurance, and with Gabby, we actually found a better and cheaper policy that actually covers a lot more than our previous one. Gabby customers save $961 per year on average, and they'll never sell your info, so there's no annoying spam or robocalls. Put your policy to the test like I did. Get a better insurance with Gabby. It's totally free to check and there's no obligation. Go to Gabby.com slash TCFC. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash TCFC. Gabby.com slash TCFC.
1: Prior to the grand jury, the second autopsy findings were revealed. This autopsy found that Don Henry had been stabbed in the back and Kevin Ives had been beaten with a rifle butt. Dr. Burton, the Georgia pathologist, testified during the grand jury hearing that the boys, quote, were either incapacitated, knocked unconscious, possibly even killed, their bodies placed on the tracks and the train overran their bodies. The grand jury issued a report in September 1988, stating, quote, our conclusions are that the case is definitely a homicide. A forensic pathologist was able to match stab wounds to Don by using his shirt. Once the deaths were ruled homicide, things began to get weird surrounding Dr. Malik. Linda began receiving phone calls about other cases Dr. Malik had ruled on. One night, the father of Janie Ward called her. Janie had died on September 9, 1989, while at a party outside of Marshall, Arkansas. She had fallen backwards off a 10-inch porch and had broken her neck. Some of the partygoers loaded her into the back of a pickup and drove her into Marshall, where she was pronounced dead in the parking lot of a bank. Janie's first autopsy revealed she had a hangman's fracture, which is when the neck is bent so far back it is separated from the spine. It usually occurs with an impact to the face, not a fall backwards. Over the intervening years, two additional autopsies have been conducted, which have just created more questions than answers. But on the call to Linda, Janie's father wanted information on how to get the initial ruling overturned. Another outrageous call came from a relative of a man who had been found without a head. Dr. Malik had ruled this as a natural death and said the man's dog had eaten the head after his death. Dr. Malik said he found traces of the man's brains and the dog's vomit. However, the head was later found, and allegedly, Dr. Malick said the dog had regurgitated the entire head. In the fall of 1988, Unsolved Mysteries aired a segment about the boys on the tracks. Family members involved were pleased with the 12-minute segment. Linda said it was hard to watch, but she decided to stick with it. Curtis went to the sheriff's office after it aired wanting to hear what kind of calls they received. Information gleaned from the grand jury investigation revealed that the deaths of the boys on the tracks were related to the seamy underbelly of the drug world around Saline County. Moreover, many began to believe that the boys had stumbled upon a drug drop from a flight out of Mina. Mina had become the headquarters of Barry Seal, once a commercial pilot. He had been the youngest pilot for TWA, but was fired in 1972 for his involvement in a conspiracy to smuggle plastic explosives to Mexico. The case was dismissed in 1974 for prosecutorial misconduct. Barry began smuggling marijuana, eventually shifting to cocaine. He was arrested once and jailed in Honduras, which was actually a boon to his smuggling career. In jail, he met several important contacts and on the plane home he met his first connection to the Medellin cartel. In 1983, Barry was indicted for drug-related charges. When he was found guilty for one of the counts, he decided to contact the vice president's special drug task force. After being vetted, he became an informant and worked undercover for the DEA. He arranged successful meetings before being outed. Eventually, the Medellin cartel put out a hit on Barry's seal. And he was assassinated on February 19, 1986, 18 months before Kevin and Don were murdered. Additionally, his biographer stated Barry never used the MENA airport in his drug smuggling efforts. However, Barry started using the MENA airport because he was attracting so much attention in Louisiana. In 1988, Sheriff Steed lost his re election bid. On November 10, 1988, two days after the election, Dan Harmon burst into the credit union where Linda worked. He was visibly shaken, and he told her that Keith McCaskill had been murdered. Keith had been a skilled photographer who was asked to take aerial photographs of the area where the boys died, but was also the owner of a club on the Celine pulaski County line, the Wagon Wheel Lounge. Celine County is dry, so this was a popular spot for residents of both counties. Before the election, Keith allegedly threw two pennies on the bar and said that was what his life was worth if Steed wasn't reelected. Keith was a large man who handled fights with ease. He was a friend of Don Henry's father, but was also acting as an informant in the case, since he heard so much in his bar. He'd had his throat cut and was wrapped in a floral shower curtain. Before his death, he had told his friend, Deputy Kathy Carty of Saline County, the deputy who had objected about the investigation while at the train tracks, that she needed to watch Dan Harmon as he was one of the biggest dealers in the area. Keith Coney, a friend of Kevin and Don both, had information related to the case. He told his father that he had been with Kevin and Don on the night of their murders. He took off on his motorcycle when a deputy's car approached them and allegedly said he saw them being forced into the car. On May 17, 1988, Keith was killed when his motorcycle ran into the back of a semi-truck. Witnesses stated he was being followed, and reported he had a slashed throat when he crashed. On January 22, 1989, another witness for the grand jury, Greg Collins, was killed with three shotgun blasts to the face. In March 1989, another witness in the grand jury hearing, Daniel Boone Bearden, disappeared. Although a tip said Boone was buried in a remote location near the Arkansas River, only a piece of his clothing was recovered. He has never been found. Jeffrey Edward Rhodes went missing in April 1989 after telling his mother and father he was scared for his life. Jeffrey had told his father, who lived in Texas, that he needed to get out of Arkansas because he knew way too much about Kevin and Don, as well as Keith. Just a few days after this conversation, his motorcycle was found on the side of the road, parked. His mutilated body was found a week later in a dumpster and had been set on fire. Frank Pelcher was convicted of his murder. In June 1990, Jordan Kettleson was found dead in his pickup truck. He had died of a shotgun blast to the head and was cremated before an autopsy could be conducted. Subsequently, no investigation was ever launched. In September 1991, Dr. Malik announced his resignation from the crime lab. Coincidentally, President Clinton's presidential campaign began at the same time. It was discovered later that an investigation was started in 1988, around the same time as the grand jury hearing. This investigation was a deep dive by state and federal agents who were looking into allegations of drug dealing by Dan Harmon and other members of law enforcement in the Celine pulaski area. Assistant U.S. Attorney Robert Gover led the investigation, but the investigation stalled when Dan Harmon indicted one of Robert's key witnesses. He began a second investigation, trying to get assistance from several federal agencies, including the DEA, the FBI, and the IRS. The IRS was the only one who committed initially, although Robert's boss eventually was able to get two FBI agents and two undercover state police officers. Dan Harmon quickly became a target in the investigation, which he knew. One factor that infuriated Dan was that there were undercover agents working in his area, and he did not know who they were. The head of this new task force, operating outside of the U.S. attorney's investigation, was Jean Duffy. She had been appointed by the outgoing prosecutor in the 7th Judicial District and had immediately hired undercover agents. Dan quickly began casting aspersions about Jean, calling her a crazy bitch. He also announced his candidacy as prosecutor and said the first thing he would do was fire her. Eventually, things would become so heated between Gene Duffy and Dan Harmon, once he was elected prosecutor, that she fled the state. At some point during the investigation into Don and Kevin's murders, a new witness came forward. He stated that on the night of the murders, he had witnessed two police officers beating two boys and then throwing them into a police car. Unfortunately, when this witness came forward, he was jailed for back child support, and after his release, he disappeared. On November 19, 1995, Dan Harmon's ex-wife's home was searched at her landlord's request after an altercation. Hot Springs police found an empty cocaine evidence package that was supposed to be locked in the evidence locker at Dan Harmon's offices. On November thirtieth, Dan's ex-wife, Holly, was arrested after making a phone call from Dan's phone to an undercover agent, trying to buy a small amount of methamphetamine. On March 18, 1996, Jean Duffy appeared on The Pat Lynch Show, revealing charges had been filed against Dan Harmon. She also informed other media sources that Dan had been present at Kevin and Don's murders. On March 22, 1996, Dan Harmon announced that he was running for Saline County Sheriff on the Democratic ticket. The next day, March 23, Dan was arrested on felony kidnapping and aggravated assault charges. His ex alleged that he had dragged her from her car, then took her on a ride at 100 miles an hour. While Dan was in jail, he went on a hunger strike and protested that his arrest was a political ploy. At a press conference a few days later, he said he would sue Gene Duffy and the Malvern Daily Record. In 1997, Dan Harmon was convicted of multiple charges of racketeering. He spent 11 years in jail. The extent of the corruption in Saline County to include the case surrounding Kevin and Dawn did not start or stop with Dan Harmon, but most likely included other attorneys and judges, and potentially Fahmy Malik. It's hard to say if Dr. Malik was involved in corruption or just so arrogant he refused to admit his many mistakes. After Bill Clinton announced his bid for president for the 1992 campaign, a list began circulating of all the deaths surrounding the Clintons. Many of these deaths stem from the investigation into Kevin and Don. The prevailing conspiracy theory, which is mostly unfounded, is that Bill Clinton was personally involved in the drug drops originating from MENA because of the CIA's involvement in the Iran-Contra affair, which preceded Bill Clinton's presidency. The Clinton's gubernatorial years were not without event, that's true. There were many allegations of sexual misconduct, which were not reported until after he began his bid for presidency. Many state troopers came forward and stated they had been involved in what was later dubbed Troopergate, where they would vet women for then-Governor Clinton, similar to what the Secret Service did for JFK. There was actually talk of an affair on Hillary's part as well, although this does not get broadcast as much. Then, of course, there was the whole disastrous Whitewater scandal, which was thoroughly investigated and for which neither Clinton was charged. Regardless of whether the Clintons were connected to Kevin's and Don's murders or not, this case is talked about in hushed tones in Arkansas, and only to someone you know well, even all these years later. In 2018, Billy Jack Haynes, a professional wrestler, came forward with claims that he had been in Alexander the night Kevin and Don were murdered. Billy Jack, who said he sobered up a few years ago, contacted Linda and Larry Ives to tell them what he knew. He said that in the 1980s, while wrestling for the World Wrestling Federation, he also trafficked cocaine. In August of 1987, Billy Jack was contacted by an Arkansas criminal politician to ask for muscle at an Arkansas transaction. This politician was afraid money was being stolen from drug money drops. And also, he wanted Billy Jack to kill two state troopers believed to be stealing the money. Billy Jack said he was at the drop, and the drop occurred with no problem, until Billy Jack and his colleagues saw Kevin and Don, who took off running. Billy Jack said two cops took after the boys and came back with them thrown over their shoulders. They dropped Don, who was already dead, on the tracks, and then one officer took his rifle butt and hit Kevin in the head, splitting his skull and killing him. Billy Jack said he did not kill the boys, but he helped put them on the tracks. When asked why he was coming forward after all these years, he said his conscience. He admitted to doing contracts and breaking legs for people. Some people believe his claims are dubious, and he has made numerous similar claims about other things, such as saying he thought about killing Vince McMahon of WWF WWE Wrestling, and that Stone Cold Steve Austin was responsible for the death of Rowdy Roddy Piper, who died of a heart attack in 2015. Aside from a great deal of local news coverage in 2018, Billy Jack Haynes' confession appears to have been another dead end. Arkansas is seemingly a hotspot for corruption, where the slightest bit of power goes to its elected officials' heads. Unfortunately, that corruption plays out badly for the citizens of Arkansas, such as Don and Kevin and their families. Sadly, the answers in this case have been shrouded in mystery far longer than Kevin Ives and Don Henry were alive. Their tragic and senseless murders affected so many people outside their family members and brought a loss of innocence to Arkansas at large. There are so many elements to this case, but the one core element to remember is a mother's love. Linda Ives' life was upturned in 1987, and since then she has dedicated her life to finding out the truth about what happened to her son. In the immediate aftermath of her son's death, she had to shoulder the details of planning Kevin's funeral She had to pick out the coffin and made sure it had a blue interior like his car. She agreed to let his friends play Stairway to Heaven at the funeral. Linda had a new wave of grief hit her when she remembered that she had not sent clothes to the funeral home, only to be told, we don't need clothes. Linda has repeated the pain-ridden details hundreds of times in the intervening years, always wearing the mantle of a mother's love. Okay, fan club members, as we conclude this episode, our one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Pod, And of course, our website is truecrimefanclub.com. If you have an episode suggestion, send us an email at tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Susie St. John, a native Arkansan. Content editing by Brittany Martinez.